Hello, it's Wednesday, September the 9th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the social, economic, political, and geopolitical ramifications in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism, and today it's my great honor to be the moderator of this broadcast. Now, this is September, and that believes uh, makes it six months now for Goodfellows being on the air. Those of you who have been watching us since the inception of this, we appreciate your viewer loyalty. We hope we're giving you the kind of show that you come to expect in the Hoover Institution. But for those of you who might be tuning in for the first time, here's what you're about to see. This is a conversation featuring three Hoover Institution senior fellows, or good fellows as we like to call them, with a wink and a nod in the direction of Martin Scorsese, but three senior fellows giving their thoughts, their brilliant insights on what may lie ahead in these uncertain times. Now let's meet the good fellows, beginning with John Cochran. He's an economist in the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. John, how are you today? Great, thank you. We're also joined by Neil Ferguson, somewhere in his wilderness outpost and undisclosed location. Neil, of course, is a renowned historian and author. He is also a broadcaster. He is a columnist. He's a, just a jack of all trades. Uh, Neil is also the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Hello, Neil. Bill, uh, it's uh, it's back to work. You can see that I'm clean shaven. I have a smart shirt on. Uh, summer's over. Let's get serious. Week three, I think we'd be in clean shaven. So if you had the under on uh, Ferguson shaving, you lose that bet. Our third uh, good fellow, last but certainly not least, is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. H.R., how are you today? Good, Bill. And Neil, that's a pretty low standard for clean shaven. <laughs> good to see you. HR, by the way, I'm in South Carolina, which is run by another McMaster named Henry. I don't know if he's related to you. And I use my time on my airplane to read this very fine book. <laughs> Thanks, I wish Paul. I could do that facial expression. Yes. <laughs> which, folks, comes out in two weeks, available on Amazon right now, Battlegrounds by H.R. McMaster. So, gentlemen, it is two days after Labor Day. In theory, people are going back to work, what passes for work in this uh, COVID economy. Kids, in theory, are going back to school. In theory, as Neil said, we're all getting serious about what time is left in 2020. So if life is getting serious, let's talk today about getting serious about what's left in the remaining time in this year. So, gentlemen, let's begin with the pandemic. Simple question for you to start with. Where does the pandemic go from here? Well, this ain't over, I think, is the is the key. Of course, it's unlikely that we'll see anything quite like April again when there was a really significant spike in excess mortality. That, by the way, is probably the best measure to look at. Mm -hmm. Excess mortality is still uh, there in uh, the US. Uh, there was a significant uptick, not just in cases, but in mortality in many Sunbelt states during the summer. And we haven't yet got, got back to what would be considered uh, normal levels of mortality, though I think we're, we're getting there. Uh, uh, the question that I think that remains to be uh, uh, explained or answered is whether there's going to be another wave uh, of excess mortality before the year is out. Now, the fear that has sometimes been expressed that, that there could be because of a coincidence between influenza and COVID-19, I think is somewhat abated because it seems as if the various measures we've taken to protect ourselves against COVID-19 are probably also going to protect ourselves against influenza. The Southern Hemisphere has had a very, very remarkably low flu season this year, and that's quite good news. Uh, the obvious bad news is that 
as people try to get back to school and back to college, which they're certainly trying to do in parts of the country, oh. infection rates amongst younger people are, are going up. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean a big spike in excess mortality, because as you all know, uh, younger people are very much less likely to die of COVID-19. The big unknown is when we'll get a vaccine. I think there'll be a vaccine announced as successful before the election. Uh, but of course, that doesn't mean it's going to be widely available. And until, and this is the last and key point, until a vaccine is widely available, because Americans have not really solved the testing and contact tracing problems that other countries have solved, we are still going to be living with COVID-19 and it's going to be inhibiting at least a, a part of our lives. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd be a little more optimistic. We seem to be in the stage of getting used to it. Uh, as Neil has pointed out, historically in, in previous uh, pandemics, even though there was a pandemic, people got on with their lives. Uh, and uh, it's trundling along there and people are getting on there with their lives. Yes, we don't have any of the competent testing and tracing we should have, but when there are hotspots, people behave a little better. Uh, right now, the locus seems to be parties. <laughs> That's where it spreads. And people can stop the partying a little bit when it's spread a little more and partying a little more when it's spread a little bit less. So it's going to be with us for quite a while, even if the vaccine does come. There's going to be reservoirs of it in the third world. It'll keep popping up. But we do seem to be sort of getting back to a sort of normal life with reasonable precautions being taken and businesses figuring out how to work. School's still somewhat of a disaster, but the business situation, we're sort of figuring out how to keep life going under COVID, which is unlikely where we'll be for quite a while. So I vote for trundling along. John, just can I jump back in very briefly? Yeah. The, reason, the reason I'm a little less cheerful than you is that when I look at the mobility data, particularly for those states that had a bad summer, the Sunbelt states, it's, it's really reached a plateau well below normal, particularly for retail and recreation trips, which tells me that there's a kind of ceiling on uh, this, uh, this new abnormal. And uh, I think from the point of view of the economy, which we'll get to in a minute, that's quite discouraging news because it means that traditional consumer behaviors are definitely going to stay impeded for, for the foreseeable future. No, and I think I agree with that. I mean, wh what's not going to happen is Great Depression, but we're going to trundle along five, 10%, whatever you want below uh, the normal, and which we'll get to in the economy. There's a big shift in, in what people are going to do, which is really, I think, the economic story. Now, there's a lot of, as you mentioned, there's a lot of uncertainty in everything. And one of the many uncertainties is we could get a big wave again in the fall, and then who knows what happens. HR, we talked early in this, um, in this series, almost at the very beginning of Goodfellows, about uh, the idea of using the metaphor of war and America being in a wartime footing in the war against COVID. But what happened to that talk and to what sense do you think America is on a wartime footing right now? Well, you know, war is the great auditor of military institutions and a pandemic is a great auditor of many facets of our society. And about uh, three months ago, Bill, I think I mentioned this, we started a, a lessons learned project here at Hoover, partnering with the US Civilian Corps. And we were working together on trying to mobilize as best we could or help mobilize the, the people response uh, to, to, the, to the pandemic and the waves of the pandemic to help match people with the right skill sets to the points of need in, in, in need communities, Detroit, for example, and in Louisiana. And as we were doing this, we, were, we have started to facilitate lessons learned from across the country, from the crisis managers at the state level, from, uh, from larger healthcare systems, from the federal government and state governments. 
And we, we just decided, hey, we can't let these lessons just go into the ether. We have to capture them. So we mobilized seven uh, awesome uh, Stanford students who set out to do interviews of people who have been really at critical points all across this pandemic response to wring all of the, all the partisan politics out of these lessons and, and really focus on what we can all agree to do in the, in the continued continue fight against this pandemic and to prepare for another potential biomedical emergency. Uh, we, have a, we have a conference on that tomorrow around a draft report. And I think what will be surprising, and I'll be able to report out more on this, is there's been considerable adaptation, right, in the public sector in, in particular. And there are many best practices out there in connection with controlling the spread of the disease, but also tremendous adaptation in terms of therapies and medical treatment. Uh, and, and of course, uh, really trying to get ahead um, of the logistics and everything that's necessary to get a vaccine out there. So I, I am optimistic about our ability to adapt and our ability to cope with this much better. And of course, the number one lesson is you have to protect the vulnerable population right. and you, you can't pose this extreme, you know, this extreme choice between shutdown um, and, and, uh, and, and, and doing nothing to control the disease. So I think the virus, I, I, the spread of the virus. I, th I think that we're going to have some really good recommendations and it's really going to reveal, I think, quite a bit of adaptation that's already occurred. Right. Gentlemen, where is the wartime spirit? Rather than a politician flashing a V sign, you have the president uh, hinting we might have a vaccine by November. You have the president's opponents saying that he's playing politics with the vaccine process. You have the the uh, research in the vaccine fields all kind of pushing back very hard against the idea of an early deadline. It's not a united front. Well, it's not always a united front in wartime, is it? Kind of depends what war you're talking about. Uh, you, you might have hoped that this would be the World War II spirit. Uh, it's turned out to be the Vietnam War spirit. And and I, I've been very struck by the the 1968-ish uh, atmosphere in the streets uh, of many American cities uh, this, this year. Uh, the scale of the protests that we saw back in, in June was uh, remarkable. Perhaps even more remarkable is their duration, the fact that protests are still ongoing in some places, uh, notably Portland. And I think the divisive atmosphere that surrounds uh, this coming election is distinctly redolent of the Vietnam era, uh, the kind of ongoing crisis uh, in terms of American lives being lost. It was, of course, very different. It was young men, uh, young conscripts being lost in, in Vietnam. It's uh, mostly elderly Americans, uh, disproportionately in minority groups who are being lost uh, here. But I, I sense that's, that's the wartime spirit we've ended up with, which was definitely not the one that President Trump hoped uh, for when he talks about a war against a silent or invisible enemy. Right. I, I would add, I mean, you, you, let's name the name. I think Kamala Harris gets a prize. Now, there's plenty of prizes for irresponsible statements by politicians going around, but her statement that she would not take a vaccine uh, that was produced under the Trump administration's CDC because Trump was pushing his fingers on the scale, that's got to go pretty high on the levels of irresponsible statements and just a measure of the partisan rancor going on. I think the deal in any war was that we unite and we fight, but under the trust that the people who are sending us into battle know what they're doing. 
And that trust was, uh, you know, in the First World War, that trust was not always there. Uh, and I think that's really a, a lot of it. Uh, at all levels, I don't want to make this presidential politics, but our, our public health bureaucracy has shown itself strikingly incompetent, and nobody likes to be sent into battle when they know that the general is incompetent. I do want to get your gentleman's thoughts on the economy. First, let's round out this segment with this question. Where do you see the protests going right now? Uh, these are not classic Baghdad protests from back in the 90s where they demonstrate in front of a CNN camera and then when the camera went off, they'd go home. Uh, these protests continue to go on. But what is the end game here? Is the end game to wait until there's a new president? Is the end game to demand a complete socialist government, whatever town in America they're in? Is the end game just destruction itself? What do you think these protests are leading to? Well, protests typically, I mean, historically, don't last very long. It's quite hard to sustain the, the revolutionary crowd. And I was struck by just how long the protests uh, lasted uh, back in June. Uh, it's also remarkable that they've kind of had a new lease of life. I think the lesson is that uh, the protest movement, insofar as it's organized by Black Lives Matter, uh, needs fresh evidence of police uh, brutality or police violence towards African-Americans. Uh, and if there are those incidents, then the protests can keep going. Uh, I think there's also uh, clearly an organized element. Uh, Antifa and, and other radical groups are trying uh, to uh, protract uh, and escalate the conflict. But a key variable in all of this, I think, has been the demoralization of the police. Uh, in those cities where they have felt that the uh, mayors uh, or in those states where they felt that governors have not had their backs. Uh, and one of the things that is really difficult to do at the moment is to draw a line between uh, protests, violent protests, and just downright crime. Uh, there's clearly been a, a spike in shootings in some cities. That's not protest. That's just crime. Uh, and I think a real uh, unknown between now and November the 3rd is, is just how much more of this there's going to be. My sense is that the more of, the, of, of it there is, the more violence, particularly that people see on their TVs or on social media, uh, the better for President Trump, uh, because uh, it really does help uh, make the Republican case uh, that, 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 that something is amiss on the American left. Uh, if things fizzle out uh, and we end up back on uh, having a referendum about uh, President Trump and particularly his handling of the pandemic, then I think he's in trouble. Right. I mean, the protests, um, uh, to the extent that they are, they, they, much of the protesting is not very much moored anymore in genuine outrage over police treatment of Af African-Americans. You know, Portland is 99% white, and a lot of the people out there protesting are sort of, are, are white people out from mom's basement with time on their hands uh, at the moment and, and crazy lefty ideas. Uh, as uh, there's genuine protest, um, and there is also crime, looting, uh, just as an, the cops are busy, the cops are, are not doing anything tonight, and, and those people take over. As Neil pointed out, protests eventually fizzle out, uh, and I think the big question is what remains in their place. Uh, do cities have a effective but reformed police force, or are they now play, uh, very high, back to high crime uh, rate, free fire zones? That's a very important question for the future of cities. Trump does not seem to be gaining uh, much advantage from this. So I, I agreed with Neil that that's, that was my opinion, but uh, according to the surveys, 
Um, uh, he's the law and order thing is not yet resonating with people, at least as far as they answer surveys to, to supporting President Trump on this. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Right. HR, this goes back to our previous conversation about pandemic, though, this sort of Shakespearean question of the fault. Does the fault lie on ourselves or on the stars? Excuse me, I think I got that backwards. Is the fault in the stars lie the stars or ourselves? And you look at an issue that goes on in the cities. Is this a function of lack of leadership in the cities and in government? Or is it a function of the class that is riding? I think it's a lack of leadership. You know, I, I really think that that there, there, there have been ineffective responses uh, that, that should have been aimed clearly at protecting people's right to, to protest, but not allowing looters and criminals to infiltrate those protests and mm-hmm. damage property and, and, and harm people who you know, saved their whole lives to open a store and then they see it destroyed. And guess what? That's happening in communities that need those stores to, to thrive and to employ people uh, in, in some of the most disadvantaged neighborhoods. And so I think it's, it's really regrettable that leaders at the local level haven't been able to make a broad appeal, appeal to the sensible Americans who can agree both that George Floyd's murder was outrageous and, and deserves uh, to attention and to protest, to demand police reforms, but at the same time to also condemn those that are destroying the communities in which people have to live. I just want to follow up on that briefly with HR. Um, you said that beautifully, and thank you. As a military man, you have experience with this. Uh, you have a city that has been halfway destroyed and looted. You have people who are a combination of criminal and um, uh, political and so forth, and you have to bring peace to the city. Uh, you know, you, you, the military did that in Iraq and Afghanistan, in places in Germany, in places that we've invaded. Do you have, uh, does that experience tell you something about how a big city mayor can put, the, put things back in order again? Absolutely, it does. And I think, that, of course, there's, there are limits to the analogy. But when we w- went into a, a, a decent-sized city, a city of about 250,000 people, it was a city where the life was just choked out of it. Uh, the, the, the communities were at war with each other. Al-Qaeda had taken over the city. And the institutions had been corrupted such that the people had no confidence that the police could protect them, for example. They essentially were had become kind of a death squad. The mayor actually belonged to the Al-Qaeda in, in Iraq faction and was facilitating their their actions. So, I mean, it's to really get to, to Bill's point, the first thing we need is we needed leaders who could understand what was driving the violence and then and then come up with solutions. So I, I called my my old friend, a parliamentarian, uh, Haider Al-Abadi, who later became prime minister of Iraq. And I said, hey, this colonel up here, I understand why he's angry. He had fa- family members killed by, Al-Qa- by Al-Qaeda, but he's part of the problem. And, and Haider had him promoted and transferred to Baghdad. And we got in a new police chief who was seen as neutral, who began to reform the police. He then became the mayor and built these mediating mechanisms between communities that removed the primary drivers of the violence and the reasons why people would regard a terrorist organization as a patron and a, and a protector. They could now rely on legitimate security forces to whom their, son, their, their sons, uh, in which their sons served and, and were representative of the community. And that led to, to really enduring security and stability until sadly the return of Al-Qaeda next version, uh, ISIS. So uh, I, I think there are analogies and leadership is, is paramount. Also is understanding what is the driver of the road of the drivers of violence and getting to the causes, right? And not just saying, 
you know, to fund the police or something and, and, and working on non-solutions uh, or, or solutions that actually make the, the problem worse. Mm-hmm. Speaking of leadership, I'd like somebody on this panel to lead me in a conversation about where the economy is going now. The head of Tesla, Elon Musk, was worth a lot of money a month ago, worth a lot less money a couple of days ago. He'll be worth a lot more money a month from now. Um, you look at people buying houses. There are people in their 30s who are refinancing left and right in their houses. There are people in their 30s living at home. <laughs> Look at people moving out of small cities, moving into uh, big cities, moving, uh, leaving big cities into small cities. You see shops closing down, stores changing, restaurants. It seems like we're having a reshaping of the economy. Yes or no? Oh, let me jump in. Yes. <laughs> I think you've got it. You know, the aggregate economy is bouncing back very quickly. Uh, I think we're going to be stuck at a level somewhat below where we were, as Neil pointed out, because there's inefficiencies associated with running things in a COVID-safe way. Right. And there are some sectors that, that are going to be perpetually low. But the aggregate economy seems to be doing okay. As far as we know, lots of uncertainty as always. Um, but the, there are places, there's a big change in places and sector. You know, retail, bars and restaurants, those are going to be down for a long, long time. Travel, international travel, forget it for a long, long time. So we're just doing different things and doing it in different places. So the the abandonment of the cities is a big piece of news. Now, is that permanent or temporary? You know, uh, in pandemics, people have always uh, left the cities. Um, was it Boccaccio who, who wrote, uh, you know, during when all his buddies went out to the villa for a couple of years of the plague, and then they went right back to Florence in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, are we going to go back? That depends, I think, on how much permanent damage is done here. The cities are kind of an agglomeration. Uh, the rich people go there because the bars and restaurants are there. The bars and restaurants go there because the rich people are there and the businesses go there because the town's there because the town's likes the bars and restaurants. So if everybody leaves and then the city's finances falls to pieces and there's no police force going forward, there's no garbage pickup on going forward, then the city can turn into another Detroit. So I think cities are, uh, I, I'm much more, um, there's much more robustness, I think. Everyone likes to project the latest trend. But I think we're on a tipping point for some cities like San Francisco where they might not come back. So uh, how much of these big changes are permanent I think less than people say, because uh, we tend to forget after every pandemic, but there are permanent changes that might, uh, that might happen that we won't just flock back to the cities because this agglomeration depends on everybody coming back and having some vaguely reasonable governance there in place. Uh, so I, I think you got it. There's gonna be a shift. Uh, there's gonna be some sectors low for a long time, and then there's going to be some big shifts, and we'll see whether businesses leave California it, forever, leave big cities too, forever, at the, the advantage of, of the places they go to. John, I think one of the big differences between really our time and Boccaccio's time is that we, uh, when we're stuck the in the country, in the uh, have the internet. You know, the, the and, uh, and I think what's really striking about our pandemic is that it is accelerating trends towards the virtual world that were already there, but we expect it to play out over 10 or maybe more years, and they've played out fewer than 10 months. Uh, I think what's going to stick is that a lot of of people find that they they work from home just as well, uh, or at least they can spend at least part of their time working from home. Uh, We find that we can do our jobs from what we consider vacation homes. Uh, Hands up if that's what you're doing today, that would be you and me, John, and maybe Bill too. And I think this this is really important because uh, our incentive to return 
even to even to a university town like Stanford has has yeah. clearly been diminished. So I think what's different now is that that we're going to stick to some of the new habits that we've formed. I'll give a few others. Uh, if one looks at the, the enormous expansion of online gaming as a form of, of recreation, I don't think that will just go away when crowds can return to baseball hey, games, I'll, I'll to say, give just it, uh, one example. So I think there's a lot of, of well stickiness to this virtual they, they life. I'd like to recommend some reading really to viewers. There's an amazing people, work of science people, fiction you know, written by Neil Stevenson now, back in the 90s called uh, Snow Crash, uh, which uh, presciently imagined a California in which uh, citizens would spend about half their lives online, and their avatars would actually be having a better time online than they were having in real-life California. And I must say, Stevenson's vision of California looks a lot like the California that I'm seeing on TV. It's kind of largely on fire, uh, and what's not on fire is under some hideous brown cloud. It's a sort of science fiction dystopia already. So I think this snow crash world where people spend more time than they've ever spent before online, whether it's for work or education or just for fun, I think we got there much faster than I would have predicted in 2019. So I think you're half right in that part of the move online is not just the technology, but the 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 agreement so that I go online, if you go online, you go online, if I go online, you know, it becomes respectable to have a sales call online and then we've all agreed that that's okay um, and, and we move online. But um, that agglomeration is also what's, what's true of cities and, and this has been forecast for a long time. You know, economists who study cities have long been puzzled why people put up with the tiny apartments, the dirt, the noise, all the rest of cities. And there does seem to be something in the face-to-face -face contact, the uh, people that you can quickly run into in person uh, that has kept cities alive. And if the cities don't destroy themselves by failing to provide sort of the basics that cities need, that people will come back uh, to those cities for those purposes. For, for example, um, online is fine for you and me. All of us are workaholics. Uh, but, um, you know, if you have a salaried employee, there's this basic problem of, of previous efforts to go online is how do you know that they're not playing video games, <laughs> that they're actually doing their work? Now, uh, if you can move to more of a gig system where you're paid per output rather than paid per hour, perhaps, although that's getting difficult by regulation. How do you bring people new, new people in? Well, yes, they're the online communities, the Slack, they're saying it's, you know, they're getting the business culture and so forth. But I do think there are strong forces to try to bring people back. Now, the question for cities is also where the business is gonna be. Uh, if the businesses leave right now, the businesses are in San Francisco because the young people want to be in San Francisco because the bars and restaurants are in San Francisco. Once the businesses move to Reno, uh, then there's, it's a lot easier for the people to be in different places. So uh, I'm, I'm with you halfway, but I do think that this force towards the, whatever mystical agglomeration that cities have had for 2000 years, uh, that force will remain. And um, the question whether this online is how we got through the pandemic versus how we form a new permanent economy. Uh, is it just one extra tool or, or is it the way we got? I, think, I don't think it's gonna be quite so big as, as you say, but we'll see. I think so, John, you're raising a, an important dimension to this too, which is what is the social dimension of this transformation? And I think all of us have to really work hard to stay connected to each other. And Neil's written about this in the Tower on the Square about how 
you know, how the, the algorithms you know, associated with social media, they, they help pull us apart from one another. Really you mentioned, you know, the protests and the, and the counter protests and how that's the, the dividing us even further. We're divided uh, on issues of race. And of course, really we have foreign adversaries who are trying to make it worse, right? What can we do to bring people together, right? Just to recreate that sense of community. I thank goodness for Zoom and conferencing apps, right? Because at least, you know, it's not just a certain number of characters that you're tweeting at each other. And you can have real conversations and bring those conversations to a, to a conclusion. To, to you can stay connected and better connect with people. So I think people want to Israel, the trend so of being better connected to each other electronically, but more distant from each other emotionally and psychologically. People want community. That's why, why are we having all these COVID outbreaks? Because people are going right back to partying. Even people, you know, they want their summer homes to be places where there's restaurants and activity and other people going on. And I would say you might have a special insight here. Good luck running basic training by Zoom. I, I presume the Army is not saying, okay, everybody, turn on your Zoom now. 20 jumping jacks, right? I'll tell you, I think, I think the Army and the military has it pretty well figured out how to minimize the risk. Of course, they, they have a demographic that is not really at risk. And these are young, fit people, um, mostly. You know, President Company, me excluded now as, as the older, not as thin as I used to be. But I, but I think that's a dimension of it. But they also, of course, you know, they, they, they have a, a very strict system you can put into place and and people tend to follow you know whatever the system is i think they're doing it in per my point is they're doing it in person you're they doing are doing it, they are doing it in person west point is open for business and in person and and has put together i think a really good program that could be a good model for uh, for other universities uh, as as an example as well but i just i just think that you know, the one, another dimension this i want to talk about is the effect on families i mean actually I feel very fortunate that we are now in a multi-generational home. Right? We get to, we're getting to spend time with our with our grandsons, and and I know you know a lot of a lot of cultures have this kind of figured out that in these times of stress, uh, in, in in connection now with people having to work from home and care for their children and educate their children, you need some backup support, and it's really highlighted the importance of of family as well. I think uh, under these circumstances. Mm -hmm. So that more than half of Americans under 29 years old are living with their parents. So maybe we're maybe we're going to the Italian system, and that'll. <laughs> I'd like to add one more thought here for you, gentlemen, to talk about, and that's the idea of mobility. And that uh, America is a country that's built on both mobility, the idea of going out and seeking new vistas, but also continuity and tradition. And if you have a situation, say, in California, where multi-generational Californians are now becoming first-generational Nevadans, maybe that's good for them because they are finding new frontiers and you know new, new fame and fortune. But on the other hand, it comes at a cost, and the family loses its tradition of being Californians. Our colleague Victor Davis Hanson doesn't believe what a fifth or sixth-generation Californian. So do you see a realignment in America the same way we saw after, say, World War II, where people moved out to the coast and people moved out into Levittown and communities like that, or will we just again in more of a bubble than we are a revolution? Well, the U.S. has always been quite mobile internally, and that mobility declined in recent decades. Indeed, it was one of those signs of, uh, of degeneration, I thought, uh, when I was writing The Great Degeneration a few years ago, that really Americans had got kind of stuck uh, by historical standards. Uh, I don't think it's at all a bad thing if people decide to relocate from uh, an overtaxed and badly governed state like California. Uh, in many ways, California is like a terrific advertisement uh, for not giving too much power to the Democratic Party because uh, the problems that the, the state confronts 
the fiscal problems, uh, the problems of the pandemic, which has not been well managed, and now the latest problem of wildfires. These these are problems of governance, and the best way of uh, of it seems to me uh, checking those problems is is uh, vote with your feet because regular voting sure hasn't worked in California in recent years. Mm-hmm. Good point. Uh, gentlemen, let's now shift to geopolitics. And uh, one thing I'm particular interested in is uh, the UAE-Israel uh, normalization agreement that sort of went under the radar with a lot of Americans, I think, given COVID, given, given wildfires and other news. The Arab League today, the Arab League refused to endorse a Palestinian draft resolution condemning the UAE. Uh, HR, why don't you lead this off? Does this speak to a new balance in the Middle East when it comes to the Israelis, the, Iranian, the Iranians, and the Gulf Arab states? You know, I, I think it does, and I think it represents a, a very significant, a really significant opportunity to foster e- even a higher degree of co- cooperation between the, the Gulf states in particular uh, and Israel around really common problems that they have. And, and that the number one common problem these days is, is Iran and Iran's continuation of a, a four-decade-long proxy war that has the region engulfed in a, in a sectarian civil war. Uh, and, and the way that Iran is trying to keep the Arab world perpetually weak to, to extend really hegemonic influence uh, across the region and to threaten uh, Israel. So I think there's, there has been for a number of years now a, a, a recognition that the interests of, of the Gulf states and Israel overlap. And to see the UAE take this move and Israel take this move, I think it will, will have, I think, a compounding effect. I wouldn't be surprised in the coming months to see you know, one or two other countries join the UAE in recognition, in recognition of Israel. And I think it's a, it's really a, a, a good development. Uh, and, and I think it ought to be a, a strong message to, uh, to the Iranians. And then also, I think it really the, the all Arab leaders have an opportunity to take advantage of this, uh, this opportunity uh, and to work together on really getting at the, the really disastrous, uh, you know, years that, that, that they've experienced and, and kind of the serial failures of, of different forms of governance in the region. Mm-hmm. But Bill, I wouldn't want us to to conclude that uh, all was well in the region, because while all of that is true, uh, if one looks at uh, the role that Turkey is playing, uh, not only in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, but also in Libya, uh, if one looks at the role that the Russians continue to play uh, in the region, it's, it's, uh, it's far from being a, a, a peaceful uh, a peaceful picture, and I think this raises a big question: uh, where where is the world headed geopolitically? Uh, it it seems to me that one of the lessons of history is that that periods of of pandemic uh, are are not necessarily followed by periods of peace. Uh, it certainly wasn't the case uh, after the the Black Death. You'd have thought after the devastation of the Black Death that 14th century Europeans would be far too exhausted. Uh, to consider warfare. On the contrary, uh, England and France uh, embarked on what proved to be the Hundred Years' War uh, that dragged on uh, into the next century. And I I wonder just when you take a step back and look not just at the Middle East, but at the world as a whole, whether you're going to see a a world even less stable in 2021 uh, than than the world before the pandemic. I would I would be inclined to say less stable. Uh, when I look at the U.S.-China relationship, for example, it seems to me, and we've talked about this often on this program, that it's not likely to improve on present trajectories, regardless actually of of who is president. 
Uh, and if you look at the way that China, for example, is picking a fight right now with American allies like Australia, the Chinese don't seem particularly in the mood uh, to, to bury the hatchet. My inclination is to expect Cold War II to escalate. And interestingly, China's influence in the Middle East is also increasing. Uh, there was an interesting piece on this, I think, in The Economist just the other day. So my sense is that the world, as we come to the end of 2020, is not going to feel like a very stable world. Do, do you agree, HR? I, I, I do agree. And I agree with the trends that you've pointed out. I mean, I, I think in many ways the pandemic has catalyzed a lot of these competitions. I mentioned Iran. Iran, of course, is is, is uh, enriching uranium far beyond what was supposed to be the constraints under the the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, they are, they are, I think, are are accelerating toward at least a a threshold capability for a nuclear weapon. What kind of conflict will that elicit? You mentioned uh, China as well, becoming more and more aggressive. I think it's it's possible that Xi Jinping's in a bit of an echo chamber, thinking that he's won on the back end of this this pandemic. He's been aggressive with not only the Australians but uh, but with uh, with the Indians, with the Europeans, uh, with the Taiwanese, and with with the Japanese. There's some big shifts going on in terms of changes in leadership. But Shinzo uh, stepping down in, in Japan as well, which which I think adds an additional element of of uncertainty. We haven't been talking about Kim Jong Un because you know he's he's out of the news based on COVID. But North Korea is still an extremely dangerous place, and and it, you know, it's, it, there are a lot of questions about you know the, the stability of that regime. Uh, but there are questions about its continued pursuit of nuclear weapons and uh, and missiles. But I could go on. But I think in general. Neil, I, I would agree with you that the COVID-19 pandemic has catalyzed many of these competitions and heightened the dangers associated with them. And what's, I think, also important for us to recognize is that the effect on us, I think, it, based on this triple crisis, right, of pandemic and recession and, and the divisions that we see in our society and how polarized we are, you know, I think that that's going to lead to a period of introspection on our part and an associated desire to disengage from these complex problem sets overseas. You saw that with the president's announcement of withdrawal of troops out of Iraq who were there to ensure that ISIS remained defeated. You see that in the approach to Afghanistan uh, as well. And these problems don't get any better when we disengage and in fact often become much more dangerous. Let me, let me, uh, I, now it's my turn to be just a little bit of optimism and, and there is some good news in here. I mean, to some extent, just a little bit of you guys are a little more on your own than you thought has forced uh, you know, the UAE to, to do something sensible, to recognize publicly what had been going on privately, and maybe Saudi Arabia will be next. It's not the greatest news. These are not liberal democracies. They have their own internal problems. Uh, but at least to see them say, saying, you know, we've got to figure out this Iran thing, and, and, uh, and you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, um, uh, and, and recognize um, Israel and, and form ties with Israel, that is a good thing. And, and let's give the administration a little bit of credit. Um, this, this did happen under their watch. Um, they also have, I think, I think the next phase in this uh, is what about the Palestinians? And I know they have a concept, uh, which is, well, let's fix the Palestinian economy first and worry about grand political solutions next. And uh, I think that would be a very wise thing for uh, Israel and the Arab states to sign on to. And, and perhaps that, that will come next. Yes, power vacuum, you know, so what, you, what we're basically saying is there's a little bit of a U.S. power vacuum and, and the players in the region stepped up to do something about it. 
The power vacuum invites China, Russia, Turkey, and so forth, all of whom have their own uh, problems. So it's certainly always going to be a hot spot in the world. But th there's a little bit of good news there. Hey, I, I think I think you're right. All, all of them do have very significant problems, John, as well. And and I, I think uh, just to just to make one other point on Turkey, though, I think at some point we want to talk more about Turkey because Turkey is not only gotten aggressive in, in Syria in a way that really created a lot of problems for Iran and, and Russia and the Assad regime, but as as Neil mentioned, in Libya as well, where it's supporting the government of national accord on, on the one side, while the Russians uh, and and, uh, and are, are supporting the other side uh, uh, with the Emiratis actually, and and with the Qataris on the side of the Turks, but all, they're becoming very aggressive in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, yeah, in, in a way that, that that could lead to a significant military clash with fellow NATO allies, uh, foremost among them Greece. So I, I think that that's another, you know, another one of these conflicts that we're not really paying attention to because of the pandemic. But but these sorts of competitions and potential confrontations haven't gone away. And on top of that, I'd add we have a choice here, and we'll get to our final topic in a second, the election. But we have a choice very soon of a second term of a of a uh, Trump foreign policy or a Biden foreign policy, which I assume would be led by Joe Biden and maybe Secretary of State Susan Rice. So, I mean, gentlemen, what does that do to geopolitics? Relatively little. I think the key lesson of Cold War One was it didn't really matter what party controlled the White House. Policy was remarkably continuous. And although there were shifts and uh, uh, changes of emphasis, you got to the point, uh, for example, at the end of the 1950s, when you know, John F. Kennedy was campaigning as a Democrat more hawkish uh, on uh, the Soviet Union uh, than, uh, than Dwight Eisenhower had been. I think a big no-no uh, for any Democratic administration would be to turn the clock back uh, in the US-China relationship to the pre-Trump years. I don't think that's an option anymore because I think uh, if nothing else, President Trump has fundamentally shifted attitudes in the United States uh, towards China amongst Democrats as, mu as much as amongst Republicans. Uh, and although there'll be a shift in emphasis and in tactics, I wouldn't expect a Biden administration to be significantly more dovish on China. It'd probably be more dovish on trade, be, might, might be more to John's taste on trade, because I don't see tariffs as really being uh, much up uh, Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris's street. Uh, but on other issues, for example, on the human rights issues, which uh, President Trump never seems too excited about, you could imagine the Democratic administration being more hawkish. And I don't know what you thought, uh, HR, but I was very struck by Michelle Flournoy's recent piece in uh, Foreign Affairs, which essentially said, we've got to be tougher and more credible uh, on issues like Taiwan and the South China Sea. Uh, and that suggests to me, as she's a very likely pick for DOD, that on some, uh, in some respects, the Biden administration might be more hawkish uh, on China than the Trump administration. I think there's a question of, is the, is, are we going to do anything about anything, no matter what statements we make? And both Democrats and Republicans have been terrible about drawing lines in the sand and not meaning it, making promises to our allies and then dropping out at the last minute, making promises to uh, Ukraine and then not delivering on them. Um, so that the fecklessness of U.S. foreign policy is likely to remain under any administration. Yeah, what, what I'm concerned about is really disengagement from complex competitions overseas under the view that it's an unmitigated good to disengage from these conflicts. And I think if you, if you look at the dominant feature of, of, the, uh, of the Obama administration's foreign policy, 
it really was that everything was defined mainly through the lens of President Obama's opposition to the Iraq war, which they saw as a decision that underappreciated the risks of action. But I think a fair criticism of the Obama administration is they oftentimes underappreciated the risk of inaction. And I'm thinking in connection with the, the, the unenforced red line in Syria when 1,400 civilians were murdered with nerve gas. I think you can kind of draw a direct line from that to certainly Russia's intervention in the Syrian civil war, but then also the annexation of Crimea, the invasion of Ukraine. This is also when China began to build islands and destroy ecosystems in the South China Sea and, and then weaponize those islands after promising not to. So I, I do think it will be important for whatever leader comes in to, to make good on, on assurances and to have really a high degree of, of credibility in connection with taking reasoned action to protect our interests and, and those of our allies. Yeah, and that has to mean um, some degree of there's a country above partisanship. If my predecessor made a promise, even if I disagree with the promise, that promise was made by the United States of America and we stick with it. Um, as opposed to just throwing out everything we did every four years. We're now, you know, if you're a foreign country and you're counting on the U.S., uh, are you wise to count on the U.S. to make good on its promises? That would be a big question to ask. Yeah, and I would just say just quickly on this point, too, it's worth the effort if it, you really want it to stick to, to do the work and, and get it passed as a treaty, you know, and, 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 uh, and too often time, off too often in recent years, Presidents have taken shortcuts in, in that connection. This is, you know, the, the JCPOA, you know, the Iran nuclear deal is, is a great example of that. The Paris Accord, great, great example of that. So if, you, if it really matters to you that much, do the work to convince the American people and their representatives in the Senate <laughs> uh, to, 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 pass, to pass it as a treaty. Well, that, that's a deep, deep point about American politics more generally that we are not legislating, we're passing rules. We're not even passing rules under the Administrative Procedures Act. We're writing dear colleague letters and executive, uh, uh, exec executive decrees, which can all be immediately overturned by the next administration. Um, so, uh, so take the time to do something permanent is excellent advice for uh, restoring America in general. Neil, I think you had something you wanted to add. One final point, what, one of the patterns of American history, which is very striking, uh, is how often a Democratic president is elected, promising a whole raft of, uh, of social and domestic legislation. And that president then ends up uh, leading the United States into a really, really big war. Uh, Woodrow Wilson did this, Theodore Roos uh, Franklin Roosevelt did this. Uh, and so, of course, uh, did Harry Truman, uh, John F. Kennedy, and then Lyndon Johnson. And uh, I, I look at the Biden administration and I, and I think to myself, I wonder what foreign policy crisis is going to come along before the ink is even dry uh, on their bold social programs, uh, infrastructure uh, bills, and all the rest of it. One prediction I'll venture to make, a crisis over Taiwan is very much nearer than most people realize, not least because of the pressure that's being applied right now on Huawei uh, by the U.S. Commerce Department. Uh, in just a matter of days, Huawei is going to be cut off from TSMC semiconductors basically shutting it, its business down. Uh, and I think the Chinese are going to put off the showdown until after the election because they do not want to play to Donald Trump's hands by having a showdown this year. But I, I suspect that if Joe Biden does win, as uh, the polls seem to indicate he will, that crisis will be on his, uh, on his desk within a matter of, of, of months, if not weeks.
Just Can to I make a quick point here too, just to just a recognition that this week is uh, the 19th anniversary of September 11th, 2001, and I think it's worth making maybe making two points about it. You know, first is certainly we're going to mourn the loss of so many innocent lives on that day. But the question I have is, is are we going to talk about what our strategy is to protect the, to protect ourselves uh, and ensure that it doesn't happen again? I think that's a discussion worth having. And I think it's also worth noting uh, in the midst of this sort of vitriolic partisan discourse that we're witnessing uh, to, to recognize that, that, that uh, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda didn't target uh, Democrats or Republicans, right? He targeted Americans. And this ought to be maybe an occasion for us to, to think about how we can come back together. I think that's well put, HR. Um, before anything reaches Joe Biden's desk, Neil, there has to be an election 55 days from now. And what an election is going to be. Here's the question for you gentlemen to discuss. What is this election going to do to democracy in America in at least two respects? Number one, the confidence that voters have in the system. And secondly, the integrity of the system itself. We have the president telling people to vote twice in North Carolina. We have Al Gore suggesting that Donald Trump's going to have to be removed from office by the military. Story after story about lawyers fanning out and challenges and ballots being recounted. And this may be not being done by the time the Electoral College has counted. Our Hoover colleague, uh, Larry Diamond, has written about this, this prospect of having not one, but two presidents come next year. How do we get out of this election cleanly? Well, I don't think we can. I mean, it seems to me that both sides have set up a crisis. Uh, both sides have uh, set up a situation in which the legitimacy of the result will be called into question. The polls are, are suggesting a, a tightening race uh, that there really has been a significant erosion of Biden's lead in the course of the last couple of months. Uh, and my sense is that uh, we will not have a clear result, uh, that the events of, uh, of 2000 uh, will replay themselves. But as Larry Diamond rightly argues, this is going to be a whole lot uglier and likely a whole lot more protracted. Uh, I think his piece is a must read. Um, it's one of a number of pieces recently that have pointed out uh, the dire implications of a result which simply isn't accepted. And there are lots of different ways in which this can go wrong. I find myself today reflecting on the 14th century schism of the papacy when there were two popes, one at Rome and one at Avignon. There's a scenario, Larry spells it in his piece, where we could have uh, President Trump insisting that he's been re-elected uh, and Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, insisting that he hasn't. Uh, and the, the recipe for chaos uh, is a really deeply unappealing one. A very eminent American businessman phoned me up yesterday and spent an hour explaining to me just how worried he was about the nation being on the brink uh, of another civil war. I said I didn't think it was going to be a civil war uh, because I, I didn't see the geographical split being at all uh, clean, clean cut. And I also don't uh, see a situation in which the military split. In fact, one thing, and HR, I'm sure, will confirm this. One thing you can be sure of, the military is not going to get involved in a political uh, crisis of this sort. So I don't think it's civil war we're staring at, but I think we're staring at a potential crisis of the legitimacy of the democratic system. And that, I think, is a really, really scary prospect. 
I, I just want to say the same thing all over again. <laughs> the central feature, the one thing this country is designed for and good at is a transfer of power, producing an answer out of often very close votes. You know, that's, that's why we have an electoral college. That's why, why we have, you add it up in states. It's not just a one-time popular vote. That's why we have the whole mechanism of it could go to the House of Representatives. There's this elaborate rules of the game to produce an answer and then to produce this is the legitimate answer. It includes protections for the losers. The losers know, okay, I can admit I lost, but I'm not gonna go to jail and lose my business and be in court for the next four years as a result of it. Uh, and that has worked all except one time for <laughs> 250 years. And that is really in danger. Uh, the scenarios, they, they start with, we have lawyers fanning out all over the country already. For example, last week, a district judge, there was a, a law in Georgia that says, here's when the ballots, the ballots have to be received by election day or they're not counted. A judge says, no, 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 that's not good enough. Somebody might be disenfranchised. I'm gonna make up a rule if it's five days later. If Georgia's close, all that's going to be in the courts. And there are lawyers fanning out all over the country to get ready to challenge all of that stuff uh, if it's vaguely near close. And then as the scenario keeps going on, well, you know, some state isn't ready to certify its electors. What happens in the Electoral College? What if Trump is won on election night, but then mysteriously the you know all the all these ballots start coming in including ones with late postmarks and that didn't get signed and so forth and the counts start going the other way uh neil had it exactly we, we had a crisis of legitimacy with the last election the large parts of the democratic party simply did not admit donald trump got elected president and we had some crisis on, on it's going back to the hanging chats um, a lot of people didn't accept that, that Bush won. A lot of people on the right were, were pretty hazy about Obama being legitimately president. And, and, and it's gotten worse and worse. This one could be a huge address. Now, we're not going to, you're right, the military will probably not be involved, but there could well be civil unrest. People in the streets shooting guns. Uh, we are geographically separated, and there's red states and blue states that are very deep. I mean, if Trump is is declared a winner at some point, I would not want to be in a in San Francisco, Chicago, or or New York that night. Um, so this the. the now, where is it going wrong? This is a part of what we're observing throughout the US right now is a crisis of governance. I think Neil said that earlier, just the basics of running a society before we get all onto our, our big programs, there's picking up the trash, making sure that the, that you know crime is held to a reasonable level, that businesses aren't, 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 uh, aren't looted, that the air is reasonably clean, that the power stays on and that we can count votes and produce a winner. Uh, this is this is stuff at sort of the basic local voting commission and state law level, but it, it's basic competence of government. And, and we have seen that fail time after time in the last year. And we are about to see, I fear, uh, unless this is just an overwhelmingly clear result, a failure in that basic competence of, of government with disastrous consequences. Mm -hmm. Hey, I'd just like to just- Sure, make us feel better. I would, just, I would just like to clarify, the military will have no role in any kind of a transition. And, and you know, there have been some of these really irresponsible essays and statements about that. I mean, I think, I think in, in these times of, of, of anxiety for us, we should just go back to our founding because there's so much there that, we, that is relevant today. And the anxieties that our founders had are the anxieties we're talking about. I mean, George Washington's uh, family fled the English Civil War. All of the founders had very much in their minds to, to prevent 
their, the military from ever having a role uh, in a transition of government. And of course, what our founders wrote about quite extensively in the Federalist Papers, foremost among them Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, was the problem of factions. So that they had in mind political parties as one of the greatest dangers to the republic. Because with factions, Hamilton wrote, comes violence. And so what we have to do is we have to work hard, all of us who have any kind of a voice, who can talk to friends about it. We have to transcend it. We have to have confidence in our founding and in the separation of powers that were set up. There are state Supreme Courts, thank goodness. There is a, 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 a federal Supreme Court that can, that can weigh in. And we all have to be supportive across the political spectrum of that process. But when it's adversarial, when there are armies of lawyers mobilized, you know, I think there's, there is going to be a lot of noise around it if it is not an, an overwhelming victory. As you've said, John, that's your greatest hope, is that whoever wins, wins in an overwhelming way. Um, it, it's, it's a period of danger to our republic. I think we have to recognize it. But the way to deal with it is to have confidence in our system. And we can gain that confidence, I think, by going back to the founding and, and reading Federalist 10 again and recognizing that the, that the, the dangers we see today uh, were present. Uh, at the founding of our republic. Right. The, this, the system is in danger, you know. The, the, so you said the Supreme Court. Well, the last time the Supreme Court weighed in, uh, it really did not produce among the losers a sense of, oh, well, here the system worked and we lost fair and square. I mean, thank goodness when the hanging chads were finally counted that George Bush had, in fact, won Florida. Uh, it could have come out differently. Not, not that that had calmed anybody in the end. But the legitimacy of that Supreme Court decision was not completely accepted on the Democratic side. And I think if, if it, the legitimacy of the courts deciding, the courts look like they're going to end up deciding many state results, uh, the legitimacy of that, I think, is, is much less sure than the legitimacy of the regular process. You'd also Larry Diamond, he has some concrete suggestions at the end of his piece, uh, give the states some more time uh, to count the votes uh, and resolve any disputes. Uh, that's actually Senator Marco Rubio's suggestion endorsed by Larry Diamond and uh, create a bipartisan commission just in case uh, there's a deadlocked joint session of Congress. I think there's no doubt Larry makes it very clear that there are some fixable problems if we act now, uh, act uh, in a way that pre prevents them becoming politicized. Uh, but if we do nothing, and I felt this way also about the role of the internet in our politics, we've done nothing really to fix that. Uh, even although problems became very, very apparent in, in 2016, not much has really changed. Uh, I think we will rue the day that we didn't make these uh, changes if we do nothing uh, and find ourselves uh, with a schism uh, in January 2020 and two presidents. Uh, the number of times in history when there have been two kings of England uh, laying claim to the throne uh, was remarkably high. Uh, and, and schisms in uh, the history of the papacy, as I said, loomed large. That, of course, happened uh, after the Black Death. There's a, a lot of, uh, of lessons to be learned, not just from the founders, but from, uh, from uh, history in the, in the longer term. There's, there's two presidents of Venezuela right now. You never know it from watching you know, our media, but we are not a monarchy. We really aren't. So we ought, to be, we ought to be thankful for that at least. Sorry, John, I didn't mean to cut you no, off. No. So I wanted to pick on Neil. So Neil, um, you, you, your, your, your statement was very interesting because you had no subjects to your verbs. Uh, we need, you know, 
something needs to be created, something needs to be fixed. Well, who's going to do it? And I think uh, this is clear how to fix this if one wants to fix this. The problem is, I forget who said this early on, both partisan sides are moving fast to make this work, to make this worse. Yep. They're moving fast to undermine it, to try to win the game in the courts or in the challenges for, as opposed to let's get together and fix the system. For that reason, I think your proposal to, to, to allow more time, you, you said to allow more time without saying who is going to allow more time. The time is set in the Constitution. The one thing we do not want to do at all is just open changing the rules. I think a lot of the problem right now is, you know, Georgia state law says they have to be in on X date. Maybe that's a bad thing, but we're going to have a court come in and change the rules. This is exactly what's going on is people are finagling the rules of the game. We forget voting is very much about the detailed rules of the game at the, at, at the local level. And that's all up for, up for debate. So changing the rules, especially changing the constitution, seems like a bad idea. We, we should play the game by that. The point is not to get the right winner. The point is to get a winner, definitely. And for well, that, you don't change the rules in the middle of the game. Right, but the, the, I think Marco Rubio's point is the December the 8th safe harbor deadline for certifying electors is not constitutionally ordained. Uh, and, and therefore it can be and should be, given the circumstances of 2020, moved, as he suggests, to January the 1st. Because what we don't want is, is, is states submitting conflicting slates uh, of electors. And that is, I think, uh, the most likely scenario, nightmare scenario at this point. Well, gentlemen, let's cut it off there for this week. I would like to uh, close by asking each of you one quick question. Neil started this broadcast by suggesting that there could be another COVID wave, which would suggest a winner of discontent uh, here in America and around the globe. So let's end on something more positive. I'd like each of you to give me a positive from your summer, a summertime content that you had, something very satisfying that occurred to you during these summer months. John, why don't you go first? Oh, no, I, I need to think a little bit. So, I mean... Oh, I'm, I'm easy. I've got the answer. It's on the tip book. of my tongue while John thinks of it. Uh, I, uh, I had an epiphany. I, I, all my life, somehow avoided reading the novels of Sir Walter Scott, a strange omission for a Scotsman. I think my mother had put me off by implying that they were boring. Uh, but I decided to finally disregard her advice uh, and read Waverley, the first of his great novels. I'm entirely entranced. Everybody should read Scott. They're absolutely wonderful. He was an extraordinary writer, funny, uh, and, and just so evocative, not just of, a, of my native land, but of a time of great division. Waverley is set at the time of the 1745 Jacobite Rising. So read Scott. There's tons of it. And it's just made my, it's made my year complete. Okay. HR? Well, yesterday we celebrated our twin grandson's first birthday. Oh. And, uh, and so and I mentioned that we, we are in a multi-generational house and, and we're enjoying it. And, uh, and we feel very fortunate that obviously that we have we have work uh, in, in, among all the family members in this household uh, that allows us to work remotely, and, and we're very happy to be together. Okay. Finally, uh, John Cochran. Yeah. My summertime activities get me out of the bubble into the real world of America, and there's a wonderful real world uh, of America of uh, people who um, – uh, go about their business, uh, be they Democrat or Republican. Um, they are interested in competent governance on furthering their businesses. I spent Monday with a, a friend of mine who uh, lives in the middle of Northern California, who had just come off the Mendocino fire. 
Part of the reason being that if you live in the town of Williams, California, where we were, uh, all young men volunteer to join the fire department. And it's kind of a thing everybody does, a sense of civic commitment uh, absent in most <laughs> places where ac academics uh, hang out. There is this, there is this core of uh, sensible, civic-minded uh, America that we tend to forget and that is, is great in the summer to be able to go out and spend some time with. There, you ended on a positive note. Was that so hard to do? <laughs> Hey, he's getting more and more positive every every time. Have you noticed? I think we got to him a little bit. Oh, no, HR. The McMaster effect, he's no question about it. He's getting kind of huggy. He's getting kind of huggy. That's it for this episode of Goodfellows. <laughs> we'll, be back, uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode, new conversation. On the behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we wish you and yours the very best. By all means, stay safe and stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you soon.